Welcome to the Everyday Etiquette Podcast. This is episode 16. This is the podcast where we discuss practical etiquette tips that you can apply to your modern, everyday life. I'm Sarah Bull, your host. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Sarah Bull Designs. I'm a wedding calligrapher turned etiquette student. I don't call myself an expert because I feel like I'm learning along right with you guys as I interview these wonderful guests. Today, we are diving into a very huge topic and that is weddings and it's so huge that I'm kind of breaking it down into different sections. Today we're going to be talking about wedding etiquette from the perspective of the bride, the groom, and the family of the bride and groom, the host, the people that are putting on the wedding. And when I wanted to do this episode there was one person that I knew I had to have on. It's my friend and fellow Um, wedding vendor Elizabeth Duncan. She is the founder and president of Elizabeth Duncan Events. Um, She has been an event planner for 15 years and has done events that are all over the country, all over the world, really. Phenomenal, beautiful, high-end weddings, corporate events. I mean, you would just die if you saw some of the things that she's done. I've been lucky enough to work with her on several events, and I can also say that she is just a kind and genuine person and honestly has the client's best interest at heart when she plans these events for them and truly makes them into uh, memorable, life-changing events to start new lives together. So she's going to give us lots of advice on how to be a bride, how to be a groom, how to be the family, how to act, how to treat your vendors, how to pay for things, how to address your envelopes. Like we're going to go into it all. We've actually broken this into two episodes to cover it all. So today, it's going to be about 45 minutes long, and then next week, we'll wrap up with episode two. Um, Before I start with Elizabeth, I just want to ask you all to go on iTunes and leave us a review. That will help everyone else find us and join along, subscribe to our little podcast here, and help it grow. But thank you so much for listening, and here's my interview with Elizabeth Duncan. Hey, Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad that you could join us today because you have so much experience planning weddings in the D.C. area and all over the country. So I know you have a lot of awesome perspective to share with us about wedding etiquette. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, and we're going to focus today on um, the experience from the bride, groom, and the family Um, perspective today. And then I'm going to do another episode in the future about how to be a good wedding guest. Before we start in with all of our awesome questions from listeners, um, I wanted to ask you um, to just tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, obviously, you don't really want to know everything about myself. (laughs) I will, uh, just to give you a little bit of context on who we are and kind of how, how my company came about. I um, I have so many brides that like to say, I'm not one of those girls that's dreamed about my wedding since I was a little girl. Well, I am. I am one of those. Um, I, you know, my parents love to tell stories that, you know, as early as age four, I just fell in love with brides and the idea of weddings. I think it was probably mostly because it was very princess-like and what four-year-old doesn't want to be a princess. Right. Um, But, you know, it it always, I I think as I got older and understood what it really was about more, I think it just, I fell in love with the romance of it. I fell in love with the celebration of it. And so it's just always been something uh, throughout my life that's, that's just, you know, I buy all, you know, all the Martha Stewart Weddings magazines mm-hmm. you know, when I was a teenager, which yes. you know, was probably <laughs> a lot of people that aren't in the industry would think is weird. Um, but I actually ended up taking a much more practical path uh, professionally. And when I graduated from Wake Forest, I went up to New York and started working in public relations in the healthcare industry. So I was actually doing uh, a lot of media work and advocacy relations work. Uh, for our pharmaceutical clients. And then ultimately that led me to San Francisco, uh, where I moved into the biotech sector. So I actually spent um, nearly seven years working in 
pharmaceutical and biotech doing communications, PR, media relations. And a lot of that was events. It was planning dinner parties. It was planning press conferences. And I think I started to, not necessarily knowingly at the time, but I think I started to realize that there was actually a career in doing things that I loved and was really great at. Uh, One of the things about event planning that's such a perfect fit for me is it is this half creative thinking and half really logistical detailed organization. And um, I, you know, I just happened to thrive on both of those equally. Uh But it wasn't until, um, you know, I, you know, all my friends started getting married, that first wave of friends that get married in kind of the mid 20s and late 20s, and that I started volunteering to help and, you know, just be that friend. Um, Then I started really kind of coming back into that childhood dream and decided, um, actually, I saw an article in, I think it was the Washington Post Sunday Source when that was fairly new. They did a profile of one of the local wedding planners who I'm now really good friends with. And it was all about how she had left her corporate job and started this wedding planning business. And that was this aha moment for me where I just was like, wait, that's a career? <laughs> you know, like, I, could get, I could get paid to do this. And it just hadn't really occurred to me. Yeah, I hear you and, on that. And, and, <laughs> so I said, oh, well, if she can do that, I can do that. Um, and so I just went about trying to get as, as much experience in the wedding and event-specific industry, uh, networking with caterers and bridal boutiques and florists. And, you know, pieces just came together so quickly. It really is remarkable when I look back on it, how, um, I don't know, everything in the universe just lined up for me when I made this decision. So I spent about five years with another uh, local planning company to D.C. And then uh, about five and a half years ago, I uh, decided to start my own company, I really loved doing both weddings and corporate, nonprofit, and other social events. It's just really nice to have that kind of dynamic mix of projects. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, now five years later, you know, we we are a growing team of uh, planners and staff at the company. We do do a lot of our business still in the, the D.C. area, but a, about a third of the business every year is destination around the U.S. and some internationally. And that's certainly, you know, for the next five years, for me personally, a big growth area is to continue to grow the destination business, especially the international sector, just for totally selfish reasons. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, so, so, yeah, we, uh, we, we tend to focus on... Luxury events, our clients tend to have a very healthy appreciation for the significance of the day. Mm -hmm. They want something that is beautiful, but more importantly, they want something that's really meaningful. They really tend to care about and appreciate that all of these people are coming together to celebrate with them and that it's important to think about the entire experience, not just about their own experience. And so we really thrive on that. We really love uh, our clients. We're very fortunate. And and it's really such a special moment to share in people's lives. So we also feel really honored about that. Yeah. And I've been lucky enough to work with you on a couple weddings. And I have to say, you do have such great clients and they really fall in line with what we believe here at the podcast in that you know, kindness and respect and compassion is so important to share with others. And that's kind of what we, why I do what I do here. And I just feel like your clients and you guys at Elizabeth Duncan events just really, you know, you are the perfect example of that. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. (laughs) Well, I mean, and um, so tell us a little bit about how you think etiquette fits into the wedding. What's the role of etiquette? Well, you know, I think it's interesting because what we see with a lot of our clients is that there's a lot of fear and intimidation around etiquette. And so often our role as the planners, as it is in so many other areas of the planning process, is to educate our clients about etiquette. And our philosophy is that etiquette is guidance, it's not rules. And I think if you look at it that way, it becomes 
so much more palatable and less intimidating. You know, there's there's a history to etiquette. There's mm-hmm. tradition. Uh, there are culturally specific uh, aspects to it. And there's a lot to know. And it certainly isn't any one person's job to know that, except for maybe Emily Post, who, right, you know, has right. established herself as the, the queen bee of etiquette. Um, but, you know, I certainly don't know everything. I still learn new things uh, every day, especially now when I think weddings have finally evolved to a point where it, it's even more personal today than it has been in decades before. Yes. And it's become ex- you know commonly acceptable that a wedding can be custom designed to be as personal and meaningful as possible to the bride and groom and their families. You know, there weren't nearly as many options in my parents' generation and certainly not in my grandparents' generation. And absolutely nowhere near the, the amount of personalization we have now, you know, in great grandparents. So right. I, you know, I love history and I, I just think um, looking back at the old etiquette books and things like that, it's just so fun to see, but so much of it is just ridiculous and out of context it is. today. It is. It is. So, <laughs> yeah. So we're often, you know, when a question around etiquette comes up, um, you know, and they're, they're just kind of, some common ones throughout the planning process, our approach is usually to say, well, this is what traditional etiquette would say about this. And then here's what a lot of our clients are choosing to do today in interpreting that. You decide what's comfortable for you. Yeah. And we'll let you know if we think you're making a big mistake. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's their event, so they can do whatever they want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I know that you were saying earlier that, you know, the reason that you encourage clients to kind of talk about some of this guidance and go by it is because you want the guests to have the ultimate best experience too, right? Yes. Well, Truly, if you really if you really study etiquette and why it is what it is, um, in a lot of the situations that come up when you're planning a, a wedding, which is a very formal event usually, um, a lot of it is around communication and people being given direction without saying something specifically. So all of the things about What's the proper attire if it's a 10 o'clock in the morning wedding versus a 5 o'clock in the evening wedding? That dates way back to when people dressed three different outfits in a day. Right. (laughs) Um, But today, you know, you're not writing. A lot of people are. We still discourage it. But you you aren't typically going to write what you want people to wear Mm -hmm. on the wedding invitation. It's something they're supposed to know. Mm -hmm. And, yes, today a lot of people don't. But they really do. I mean, I think most people have a sense that an yes. evening wedding is going to be more formal than a daytime wedding. And I think just the nuance then is where they might need a little bit of help. But it really, you know, the etiquette when, when it's, you know, invitation wording and who comes on the guest list, who's invited to engagement parties and things like that, it really is about communication and making sure that your guests understand what they're being invited to do and what they should expect from yes, that. Absolutely. Um, so it's absolutely. it's not it's not about rules, it's not about class status. It's right. just it's a communication form. Exactly. I remember when I got married 10 years ago, um, we had to make sure that the ceremony started at 5:30 rather than 6 or 6:30 because we didn't want guests to think that it was black tie. Um, because, you know, and I come from a Southern culture because people still kind of went by that rule, especially like mm-hmm. older generations. They would come in a tux or black tie where um, if the wedding was at 6 or 6.30. Absolutely. And I think what's interesting today is that a lot of that etiquette has started to evolve to adapt to kind of the more modern times because for a number of years just you know most recently we had really started to see weddings uh, go to the more informal casual relaxed uh, still elegant um, but we were hearing a lot of requests for a more relaxed environment mm-hmm. um, in the past year and a half we've definitely seen thing the pendulum switch 
And we've seen a lot more clients going back to this, no, I want it to be black tie. I want it to be as formal as it can be. And they don't actually care what time the wedding starts and whether that would technically be considered black tie or not. They just know that they want a really formal, glamorous event. Yeah. Yeah. And, And I think it's at times like that where, for example, if it were a one o'clock in the afternoon church service and the reception wasn't going to start until six. Those are the times where it's very confusing for guests. That is confusing. What am I supposed to wear? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And that's where I think it helps to just have some historical references to give, give our clients guidance. Yeah, absolutely. And along those same lines, I've noticed in the past, you know, in our generation, um, that now brides and grooms and f- they're doing what they want instead of what their parents want. There's definitely been a shift, I think, in the past generation. I know when my parents got married, it was more their parents, my grandparents, just planned the whole thing and invited their friends and just like allowed my mom and dad maybe to invite a certain number of their friends. It was it was more of like the parents showing. Um, it was their social thing. It wasn't so much for the bride and groom. And so I love that now everyone's kind of making it more meaningful for the couple. Absolutely. I I mean, I think a lot of that, at least when I look at it and think about it, because that was certainly the same for my parents as well. But I, I think to me, how I, how I look at it and interpret it is it's, it's a reflection of, modernization across society. So, you know, when my parents were getting married in 1970, you know, my parents were considered kind of um, abnormal because they didn't get married right out of college. You know, they they didn't meet until, um, I think my mom was 24, and she was considered an old maid when she got <laughs> married because in, she's from the South. I have a, you know, a lot of what has educated me about hospitality and entertaining has come through my Southern mother. Um, Southerners just really, I think, hold on to and cherish their traditions and etiquettes so much more than a lot of other parts of the country. And um, I think what's different about today is that the average age of marriage is much higher than it was in our parents' generation. The opportunities for men and women now are so much more than they were uh, at our parents' marrying age. And so with that, I think you also, you know, if you're not a 21-year-old bride, you know, that's getting married, basically moving from your parents' house to your husband's house, right? right. Um, and now you are a professional young woman, you have hopefully a lot more sense of who you are and what's important to you. And hopefully you have your relationship with your parents has started to evolve to be a little bit more peer to peer. Yes. And I think that's why you start seeing more of this. Um, We certainly have a lot more clients that the bride and groom are the main point of contact. Yes. But the parents of the bride are still very much hosting the event and sometimes that can create a lot of tension around etiquette. Uh-huh. And, you know, the advice that we're often giving, you know, one of our many roles that we play is that of therapists. Yes. And so, you know, we're often having to have kind of family interventions. Not beca- And it's interesting because it's not because the parents and the bride and groom have completely different ideas about hospitality and etiquette. But it's because they haven't been communicating with one another. Right. And of course, when there's a lack of communication, everyone assumes the worst. So the parents are assuming that the kids are planning, you know, a flip-flop backyard barbecue. (laughs) (laughs) And the kids are are thinking the parents are going to make them have this, you know, fancy-schmancy country club wedding that they don't want to have. And really... Everybody just wants everyone to be happy and right. everyone to be included that's important to them to be included and, and for people to have a nice time celebrating, for our clients at least. You know, like I said earlier, most of our clients, they really do have healthy perspective about the importance of the day and, and it being about the people coming together and celebrating with you, Yeah, not so much being, it's all about the bride and groom and let's yeah. make it the bride and groom show, you know, where everything just is so centric on them. So what's your guidance on who pays for what? Because, you know, a long time ago or not really even that long ago, 
It was the bride's parents pay for the wedding, the groom's parents pay for the rehearsal dinner, and maybe a few other things like transportation, I know was one of them. Um, but where does it stand now? You know, I think like a lot of other things, anything goes. Um, for us and our clients, you know, since we are focused in the luxury market, there isn't as much of a discussion about splitting costs mm. uh, as there might be if uh, a couple's planning a wedding on a more limited budget where it really would be helpful to follow the old traditions of splitting some of those costs. So I really haven't had any clients you know, in the past 10 and a half years or so that have, for etiquette reasons, yeah. felt really strongly about following those guidance. Yeah. Um, but I do think that what comes up a lot is that, you know, maybe it's the second or third daughter getting married mm -hmm. and the parents feel like they, they had, they've had a chance before to kind of try and control everything. And they're more than happy to let us work with their daughter or son to, make this happen and they are just going to write the checks or, you know, they just don't feel the need to have the, the church wedding and the museum reception because they've already had two weddings in the family. Um, so I think, you know, what we're often more and more having a discussion around is, and it's certainly something that we advocate if the clients indicate in the beginning that it might go this way, is we kind of call it the pot of money. And that one of our biggest pieces of advice, if there's going to be some sharing of uh, the costs, is that the bride and groom go to their respective families and say, figure out what you would like to contribute. We're going to put all of the money into a pot, and then the bride and groom and the bride and groom alone will decide how that money is spent. Yeah. And we certainly think from a practicality standpoint, it works well because when you have a sharing of costs, it often then also divides the decision control. Absolutely. And it's and planning a wedding is already hard enough, and there are so many decisions to make that when you have three or four decision makers, it can really complicate um, each decision and, and draw them out. And so I think when we can really make sure that it's clear who the decision makers are going to be and that the bride and groom then have that power over, over deciding how they want to allocate the resources. And then, uh, you know, we're often advising them to back out a certain amount and mm -hmm. think about having that left over to put towards their future together. And I, I think it, it really helps them think about their budget and think about their the context of their wedding day in the whole marriage um, in, in such a lovely way that's different than when you know, the parents are just going to write a check whenever we send them an invoice. And oftentimes, you know, we have a few situations where the parents don't want, say, the daughter, the bride to know about the cost of things. Mm -hmm. And we usually have to have a, conver a side conversation with the parents about that because we really feel like while we, we know it's coming from a good place, mm -hmm. it actually, I think, hurts the process. Um, rather than helps it. You know, I think the bride should be empowered to make decisions for herself. And, yeah. I, and I think it's good for her to know that if this amazing idea that she has is going to cost $20,000, yeah. that she can have the practicality to decide, you know what, it's my wedding day and I know it's ridiculous, but it means everything to me to have mm -hmm. fireworks, you know, um, that she makes that decision in context and not in the dark. Yes, I love that. I absolutely love that. What's your best advice to give to uh, the parents of the bride when the bride wants to be 100% in control of the wedding decisions? What do you say to the parents? You know, it's interesting. I probably would say the same thing to the parents as I do the bride and groom over and over. Um, no matter, you know, whose perspective it is, I think I think some of the some of the potentially disastrous things that are happening with things like Pinterest and Instagram and, and all of that is that it does fuel a lot more fantasy without any context. So if you see a picture, you know, if a bride sees a picture all over Pinterest, it can create this false sense of availability 
when that could have been a styled shoot with antique chairs pulled from an mm-hmm. antique store that don't exist on a rental market, you know, or China that is $20 a place setting to rent versus five. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot of, um, you know, tension that can come up and, and, confusion that can come up about um, what's really available and and what's important and who decides. But, um, you know, in terms of the question, I'm always kind of going back to communication and being as open as possible. And I think at the heart of that is respect. Mm -hmm. Certainly for me and how I try to um, act as a person in the world is being respectful to everyone. Everyone deserves my my respect. Whether or not they hold it is up to them. Right. Um, but I think, again, like I mentioned earlier, too often not enough communication is happening and a lot of assumptions and um, you know, negative assumptions usually are being yeah. made in that in that gap. And a lot of times we're trying to bring the parents and the bride and groom onto the same page. They actually are almost always already on the same page. They just haven't communicated it. And, you know, one of the things that we really emphasize um, is that too often we're seeing couples and families jumping into the planning before they even have sat down as a family and had a conversation about what does a wedding mean to us? What do we think is really important to having a successful event? What size sounds like the kind mm-hmm. of size that we would feel really comfortable having? And whoever is paying for it, what can we afford to do? Yeah. I, I mean, I just am always surprised when I'm on the phone or in a meeting with the bride and they booked a venue and haven't even had this conversation. <laughs> you know, they, they haven't. They, it's, it's so fun. And I get it. I mean, I, we do this every day. It's so fun to think about colors and flowers and food and pictures and your dress. But if you start going down these paths and you haven't even defined your parameters for success, defined your dream, you know, defined your budget, it can get really tricky and it can cause a lot of, you know, frankly, some very serious problems. You know, we have a a lot of clients who have, you know, overinvested in a venue that ultimately uh, puts so much strain on the, on the rest of the budget and that they can't have the complete event that they want. But I think, you know, for parents, you know, the message probably gets a little bit more catered to um, communicating clearly about what their priorities are and what's important to them and why. You know, gone are the days where they can just say, because I said so. Right, you know, right, this, right. If this is a 28 or 33-year-old exactly. bride, that's not going to fly. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I think for the brides, usually what we're often saying is, you know, your parents love you and they want the best for you, but this is also an event that's about them. It's it's them wanting to celebrate you and right. them wanting to share this very happy moment and this joy with the people they love and care about. And honestly, I, I would say the one issue where the most kind of dissonance occurs between the parents and the kids is, is around the guest list. You know, it's it's the bride and groom being like, I've never even met this person. Like, I'd rather have my, you know, college roommate sister at the wedding than, yes. than this business associate of my father's. But again, it just it comes back to respect. And I think unless the bride and groom are going to pay for it entirely themselves, if the parents are involved in any way in hosting it, then their wishes need to be respected and included. Yeah, absolutely. And I was the next question I was going to ask you was how not to be a bridezilla, but I think you answered <laughs> that because I think it's mainly about not having unreasonable expectations and also communicating clearly with your family and your planner and your bridesmaids and anyone else that's involved. Absolutely. I mean, I th- you know, I feel very fortunate that I have not encountered one of these bridezillas. And I think honestly, I'm I'm not entirely sure they really exist. You know, I think a lot of it is reality TV and editing. Yes. Um, I, I will say that I see a lot of our brides being swept up in it all. And I think what what really, you know, I, I, it's wonderful. I had some clients recently, we had uh, dinner after their wedding. 
um, a few months after their wedding, we, you know, I like to get together with the couples and just kind of regroup and check in. And um, they were talking about how they hadn't expected, and it was it was a lovely kind of surprise of the planning process, uh, was that it was such a process of self-discovery for them. And I think it is true. Not everyone is inherently wired to be introspective and to think about who am I? What do I believe in? What do I think is beautiful? But when you're planning a wedding, you know, you are being encouraged to be very self-centered in a lot of ways. You right. know, as a planner, I'm constantly having to advise my brides in particular um, not to take an idea off the table too quickly. I think in society, we are very much rewarded for thinking of an idea, analyzing it, and discarding it as not good enough in the space of about a minute. <laughs> and, yeah. But with a wedding, you know, with our clients, because we're trying to custom design these incredibly meaningful and personal celebrations, we need to get all of those juicy ideas on the table. And we, we, I'm always saying like every idea gets to stay on the table until I tell you it's time to make a decision. And when we're making a decision, it's with all the information in front of us. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think a lot of it is, it's very easy to get uh, to lose sight of, of perspective and get carried away when there are all of these people around you saying, "But what do you want? This is your day. You know, you can have anything." And um, and so I I can see how it happens, but I do think that again for us we haven't really experienced that. And and if if we are, it's more in the sense of brides feeling overwhelmed and stressed and more feeling like they're not getting the support from their family and friends that they need. So they feel like they're carrying the burden all by themselves. Um, and so I think it's, it's you know, like the bride, the whole bridezilla kind of myth that's out there um, is probably all coming back to communication and respect. Again. I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think maybe we all have our moments. I mean, I know that I had a particularly ugly moment about the chairs at my venue. The venue <laughs> wouldn't let me have the chairs that I wanted. And I remember like being very tearful about that. Um, but overall, I do think it's a myth. I think so. I think so. I mean, it's not uncommon. I, you know, I often, I would, I don't usually say it quite like this to our clients, but I am often you know, in my head saying, there's always going to be one thing. There's going to be one thing that mm -hmm. our brides will fixate on that it makes absolutely no sense in yes. the big scheme of things Yes, why they're fixating on this one thing. But it's just, they just need a release. There's yes. just, there's anxiety, there's adrenaline. Um, usually this isn't the only life change going on. You know, pl when you're planning a wedding, it often means you're planning to buy a house together or you're right. moving in together right. or someone's getting a new job. You know, it kind of opens a lot of new doors when you're taking on a big life change. And so it's, I think the, the other thing that comes up is that most of our clients are, you know, both working, brides and grooms are both working and they are typically very busy. And one of the challenges is that they think that they can just make these decisions nights and weekends. Yeah. And there are so many decisions and there's so much preparation for us to educate them so that they can be making informed decisions that it takes more time than that. Yeah. And also you don't want to be doing it all the time. You know, yeah. one of the things we've learned is that you really have to pace it out for them because they can very easily feel like all they're ever doing is wedding planning, you know, yeah, all they're ever doing is talking fatigue. about the wedding. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, well, I put out the call to just collect as many questions as people had about the process. And so let's just dive in and get started with some of these questions. I'm, I'm so excited to hear what you have to say. Um, okay, so I'm going to start with like the sending out the invitation process. Okay. So the first question I got was, is there ever an appropriate time to include the registry information on the invite? I don't think there is. I think that um, that is one of those rules and traditions that I personally still feel has a lot of relevance and validity. Um, I'll never forget one of my favorite stationers at Just Paper and Tea in Georgetown in D.C. Carolyn once put it 
love it, like just phrased it so well. And I think it's something that applies to a lot of the questions like this about including things in, in the invitation. The wedding invitation is an invitation. Mm -hmm. It is inviting someone to come join you in the celebration of your wedding. There shouldn't be anything in there that assumes they're coming or assumes that you're going to get a gift. You know, yes. I mean, it's, it's about the invitation. It's about communicating to them that you love and care about them enough that you want them to be there to share in this moment with you. And I think what's happening today, and, and I've seen this with some of my clients as well, is that we're trying to be efficient. We're trying to think about, well, I don't want to get all these questions. I don't want all of these people calling or emailing me or my mother and, and asking where they registered. Wouldn't it just be so much easier if we tell them what the hotels are and that we're doing transportation and all of this stuff? Yes, of course, it would be easier, but it still feels very gauche to me, me to attach, get me a gift, and here's where you can shop for me right. with come to my wedding. So I really believe in keeping those separate. I agree. And registries are a relatively new phenomenon. Um, I think it was started in the 1950s by a department store in Chicago. Um, so it's relatively new in the, the history of the world. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's so nice to have that. So your guests don't get you five ice buckets. But <laughs> um, I do think that it's not a good idea to put that on the invitation. Along those same lines, I get asked all the time if there's a nice way to ask for cash gifts only. <laughs> what do you think about that? I don't think there is a nice way to ask <laughs> for it either. <laughs> I do think, I mean... You know, typically things like the registry and gifts, um, it really is best handled word of mouth. Yes. And, and if, if it's possible, I think through the parents. So, again, going back to communication and making sure that you, your parents and the groom's parents or um, your partner's parents are both equally informed with how you would like for those questions to be answered. Truthfully, today, I mean, anyone that's 40s and younger, they're going to go online and be so happy that they can click through and yes. buy a present that way. But yes. most of the parents' generation and older today are still kind of, of, you know, they're still a little weary of some online shopping. And so they really kind of are more likely to call the mom and say, hey, you know, this is Aunt Susie and, you know, what should I get them? Where are they registered? And she might be more likely to walk into a store and pick something right. out versus right. go online. Right. So I do think the, you know, the old-fashioned way of handling registries word of mouth or, yes. you know, if you have a website, certainly it's it's great to put it on the website. I mean, what we have found and, and what I'm often having to counsel clients about is that from your perspective, you're thinking... I'm going to create this lovely website and it's going to have all the information anyone's going to need. And then that way they don't need to bother me or my family with any questions. And I think in theory, that's a great idea, but that's just not how it's no, going to work. No, it is not reality. There's, guests are still going to reach yep, out. The guests are. are not going to look at your website. No, they're not. They're not. Yeah. Or, it's I mean, fine. <laughs> yeah, some of them will always call you or call mm -hmm. your mom and ask those questions. But in, along those same lines, I've seen several people recently and they are sharing their registry information or uh, in this age of crowdfunding, I've seen a lot of this like you pay towards their honeymoon kind of situation and they're sharing those links on Facebook and mm. I get it. I totally get it. Like you're 40 years old, you don't need pots and pans because you've already lived on your own and you already have all this stuff. Like I totally get the reason behind it. But I still just cringe a little bit when I see that on the shared on Facebook too. I agree. I mean, I think probably because Facebook feels overly public in some way. You know, for most people, they're friends with people they don't even know on Facebook. Yeah. Um, I haven't, you know, I haven't fully formed a, a strong opinion on one, you know, money versus a physical gift and to the idea of kind of paying towards the honeymoon. I think in theory, it's a great concept. I think it's a, you know, a modern interpretation uh, for modern couples. I think it's just about presentation probably yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that makes it smack a little bit 
um, of, of the tacky. Um, yes. Again, you know, I think whenever you become more focused on what gifts am I going to get, you've lost a little bit of perspective about what the day's all about. Yeah. Um, that that being said, I, I think if you've had the conversations internally within the family unit with you know with your partner and have been able to identify you know what what you really need and what's really important to you and you have a way of communicating that i think that that you know there are there's room for these kind of modern ideas i think so too and i often shop off registry because i enjoy trying to find a really unique gift that is very meaningful to the couple so it's not something like an ice bucket that they would get duplicates of it's like maybe a beautiful antique silver tray that i found in a antique store and if you're asking for cash or um you know, funds towards your honeymoon, then that makes me feel uncomfortable because maybe that vintage tray wasn't as much money as I feel like I would give to your honeymoon. You know, Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. just makes me uncomfortable as a guest. Absolutely. I mean, I think the thing that's interesting is there are some, there are some cultures where it's very much accepted uh, and expected that money be given as a gift. Yes, Um, true. You know, and I, so I think it's, Again, I don't think it's so much about the act itself. It's more about the presentation of the request. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, you know, what I might advise a mother if she asks, well, how do I, how do I answer that if they're not really going to register for many things and someone wants to give them something? Um, you know, I, I would say I've, I've maybe had this conversation twice in 10 years. And usually my approach would be, you know, not to say it directly, but to say something like, oh, you know, Jane and Jim, you know, they, they're, they've just bought a new house and they're really looking forward to, you know, decorating it and creating this space for them. And, you know, the dogs are going to have a backyard and they're so excited and, you know, they don't really need a lot of things. Um, but, you know, if there's something that you think would really help them complete the house that I'm sure that would be appreciated. And then, I I always tell clients you have to have some kind of registry somewhere. Uh, you don't have to do a complete registry, but you you know for convenience for your guests and things yeah. like that, they need you need to give them guidance on where you like to shop. Yeah, and if they get if you get five ice buckets, you can take them all back and use that money yes. towards what you do yes. need at that store. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I I usually will encourage kind of some indirect reference like that yeah. rather than saying, you know what, they just want money. Just write them a check. Yeah. I would I would never advise a client to, you know, no. to say that to someone. No. And also brides and grooms and couples be considerate of when you're registering what you're registering for because I can't tell you how many times I've tried to buy something on the registry and it's either you know, $500 for one thing, or it's like these little kitchen trinkets for $5 each. And Mm -hmm. and there's really not much in between. Be considerate of the guests that are coming to your wedding, what you think they're probably going to spend on your gift Mm -hmm. and find items that apply to that. Well, absolutely. I mean, typically what I recommend to my clients is that it starts by taking an inventory of your home mm-hmm. if you're already living together or if you're separate homes if you aren't and and saying, well, what do I have and I, I really don't need more of or what do I have that I just bought it last year. I, you know, I, I don't need that. And you come up with this, you know, this list then of what you have and what you don't have and would like to. And I think you, you, you work from there and naturally things will kind of cross the different cost categories. I do, like many things, I always try to come back to what's at the heart of this action. And at the heart of gift giving for a wedding is the gesture. Mm-hmm. So we, we give gifts out of a gesture of celebration, out of a gesture of thanks for the friendship or the relationship. Um, we give them to add to the celebration of the moment. And so I think at the heart, it's about the gesture. It's not about the thing. It's Mm -hmm. not about the value of the thing um, and how big or small it is. I mean, for me, I'm I'm a huge foodie. I I love going out to eat. I love cooking. Uh, We, you know, my parents used to throw these, you know, fantastic dinner parties and I was always the waitress passing around (laughs) the hors d'oeuvres and, you know, talking to the like, you know, 
four star generals and and all of this and um you know i i always like to go off register like you but but usually it's because most people aren't going to think to register for certain things um like one of my go to gifts is uh, like an interesting mix of serving platters yes and i always will include one or two family recipes with my gift I because it makes it that much more personal and I'm sharing another layer. It's not just a thing, um, but it's it's also you know kind of from from my home to yours kind of an idea. And so I think that even if you know, funny example, I actually was on the phone with my brother last night, and he and his wife are attending a wedding this weekend, and um, they're a little late getting getting the wedding gift. Yeah. So the registry is almost completely sold out for this couple. And, and he's like, what should we do? Like, what's appropriate? And so I was trying to, you know, just give him some ideas like my platter idea. Um, and I said, or, you know, buy something off registry at one of the places where they register because they can always return it and then use that money down the road for something. But you know, Very that's true. a store that they like yes. rather than just getting something from somewhere random. Yes. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's, it, it really is just about showing that you, you love and care about the couple. And so it, I, I think don't put too much pressure on yourself and, and try and stay tethered to that, that gesture. Yeah. One question I saw on a Facebook group that I'm a part of, uh, she was asking all of us in the group, um, she's getting married this summer and a really generous aunt gave them a Nespresso machine. Mm, and mm-hmm. she was wondering if she could go ahead and open it and use the Nespresso, even though they haven't had their wedding yet. And she hadn't sent a thank you note. What do you think? That's an interesting one. Isn't it? I, you know, I think if I recall correctly, the only time that would get sticky is if something happened and the wedding didn't go forward. Right. I think traditional etiquette says that you um, would return gifts if the wedding were canceled. I'm not sure if I 100% agree with that. Again, I think a gift is a gift. Yeah. And I don't think anyone that loves and cares about you would expect you to return an espresso machine if, yeah. if the wedding didn't happen. Um, but I, th- I, I don't see, I don't see why not. Um, I know this is, I, every now and then I have completely irrational, somewhat superstitious kind of feelings. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of them where I'm like, mm, I don't know if I'd want to like break open anything before the wedding actually happened. I don't want to jinx anything. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I also think, you know, someone has given you a gift. It is now your possession. Mm-hmm. It. I don't know that it makes sense to leave everything in their boxes just piling up in your home until after the wedding. Why not go ahead and get some enjoyment out out of it? But with that very first cup of coffee, I would write my thank you note. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's that's just an efficiency tip too. As the Mm -hmm. gifts come in, I would go ahead and open them and write the thank you note. You know, Absolutely. make sure, you know, it doesn't have your married name on the stationery. Make sure it has your maiden name on the stationery. But go ahead and write the thank you note because otherwise you're going to get bogged down in thank you notes. Mm-hmm. And I know that they say you have a year, but that's not a – that shouldn't be the norm. The goal. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Don't think of that as your deadline. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I'm completely hypocritical to talk about thank you notes because for someone in the hospitality industry, Me too. I'm a complete failure when I mean, it comes to sending thank you notes out. And I have to say a few years ago when I stumbled across a little piece of historic etiquette that said that, and I want to say it was probably Emily Post, but it said that if you open a gift that someone has given you in their presence and say thank you, you do not have to write them a thank you that note. That is a thousand percent true. I have researched <laughs> this. We have talked about this before. It is a thousand. I go by that rule, especially at like Christmas because you're oh, yeah. seeing everybody oh, yeah. in person. It's it's just, you know, my sister-in-law is so amazing at writing thank you notes. I mean, she writes thank you notes if I, you know, babysit my nieces. And I just, I'm always like, oh, I want to be like that. Like, I want to be that kind of person. But I think, you know, time management wise, I just, it's so much easier if I can just say thank you in person. Yeah. And yeah. really mean it. You know, yeah. <laughs> I do think that 
for weddings and babies, you still have to write the thank you note, mm-hmm. even if you saw them in person. Absolutely. But Absolutely. for all other gift giving times. The other thing, I mean, the other thing I would just throw in the ring on thank you notes is I don't think it's fair to have the bride bear the sole burden of writing thank you notes. Yes. I often will, especially, you know, I have a wedding tomorrow and there are 260 guests. I think the bride has done a lot of the the decision making for the planning process and I would say the groom needs to step up and help on a lot of the thank you notes. So usually I advise if it's from someone from his guest list or his parents guest list, he should write the thank you note and if it's from her, she should write it. But there shouldn't be one person who's solely responsible for writing the thank you notes. It's just too overwhelming. I agree with that. And I have a male cousin who was getting married. And at the time, we did not know his bride. I think maybe we'd met her once before the wedding. And I remember that he wrote the thank you note um, to my parents for their gift. And that was so much more meaningful to my parents because they didn't even know his wife. Exactly. I mean, now they know her better. But um, it was much more meaningful to come from him, too. Completely agree. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Okay. Back to invitations. Yes. Um, what do you usually see included in the invitation? I know that traditionally has the RSVP card, mm-hmm. um, but what else? I know sometimes people put like accommodations, information, maps, mm-hmm. um, city information. Like what, what do you see typically? So I will say that this is coming up more and more. I go back to Carolyn from Just Paper and Tea's advice that the invitation should be just that, an invitation. And anything beyond that, you're, you're choosing to kind of buck tradition mm-hmm. and go down this path of, well, it would just be easier if I could tell everybody with the invitation about the hotels yeah. rather than by word of mouth. So I think with my clients who, you know, I'm usually having a conversation, you know, all of us, when we're working with a client, one of the, you know, big conversations in the beginning where we cover everything, one of the topics is etiquette. And, generally asking clients to self-identify with how much they want to follow traditional etiquette versus adapt it to what works for them. So if it's a client that has expressed that it's very important to them to follow etiquette to a T, Mm -hmm. then nothing else other than the invitation and the response card and a reception card, if there's a separate one, would be included. Um, And you would always do an inner envelope and an outer envelope. Um, More and more clients are choosing to put accommodations cards and directions and things like that. I, again, I go back to, I think that's something that just makes them feel better. I don't know that it actually has as big an impact as they think on minimizing questions. Yes. So Agreed. I think it's one you just have to decide what's best for you in the moment, but really keep in mind that the, the point of the invitation is to invite. And once you start going to things that relate to attendance, mm-hmm. you're making a big assumption. Yes. And I was just telling this to a bride um, that wants to include a map in her invitation. If you want to include the map because it's pretty, go for it. But the chances are that people are going to hang on to that and bring it to the wedding as like an informational piece on how they're going to get to the different events. The chances of that happening are very slim. They're going to forget to bring it Mm -hmm. or lose it or anything like that. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree. All right, we're going to take a little break there. I've divided this episode into two parts because it's just so much knowledge. Um, So we're going to stop there and pick up the rest in part two. Be sure to tune in. We're going to get into more specifics about guest lists, inviting children to the wedding, the parties surrounding weddings, how to treat your vendors, all sorts of good stuff. So tune in to part two. Thank you for joining us. You can find Elizabeth Duncan at www.elizabethduncanevents.com. Catch you next time.